is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to the cousin of Jim Clark, Doug Niven, who is also a trustee of the Jim Clark Trust. Plus, Richard West explains what happens in a racing team when things go wrong. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you here. Hope you're well and looking forward to the festive season ahead. And I talk to you here in the middle of a snowy day as the snow falls outside the window. It's like something out of a Dickens novel around here. It really is. And I can't quite believe that it's Christmas already. But it's significant for this podcast because not only is it episode 35, 35 weeks of it, uh, but we're also taking a break over Christmas. So this current episode marks the end of the current series of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. It's been a real honour for me, Wayne Scott, to be with you lot every week, guiding us hopefully with some information, some entertainment and some interest through what has been a turbulent and very weird year. I'm sure you'll agree. It's been a fascinating journey with conversations with club members and key personalities from the Jaguar community, and I've loved chatting to every single one of them just as much as I hope you've enjoyed listening. And I sincerely hope you've really enjoyed the podcast, and they've just gone a little way, a tiny way, to helping you through 2020. That's not entirely it, though, because the podcast will return on Christmas Day with a roundup of the year gone by with some of the staff and volunteers that dedicate their time to the running of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Furthermore, we'll also have an episode released on New Year's Eve that will preview all of our holidays coming up in 2021 as a bit of a touring special. So if you fancy getting your Jaguar out and about over the next 12 months, that's one not to miss. Also, news of a great achievement for this podcast, thanks to the support of all of you. The JEC podcast got a gong. It's true. Uh, we got highly commended at the Classic and Sports Car Awards this week. Uh, the awards run by Classic and Sports Car magazine are usually held during the NEC Classic Motor Show weekend, which is the big season ender for the classic car community. And they recognise the efforts of clubs and organisations and individuals as well within the historic vehicle sector throughout the past year and uh, we were singled out as finalists in the social media category eh, get us uh, for our podcast this podcast your podcast and the awards panel said that uh, many clubs have begun podcasts over recent months but few can claim the huge success of the jaguar enthusiast club podcast launched at the beginning of lockdown the weekly hour-long jc podcast was designed to entertain and inform the worldwide Jaguar community and has attracted more than 6,000 subscribers. It's true. With its professional production standards, well, thank you very much, and uh, special guests including Martin Brundle, Wynne Percy and Kevin McLeod, plus all of those car club members that we've talked to as well. Some fascinating restoration stories, for example. Don't forget, of course, you can listen to all of those old episodes whenever you like. If you want to revisit some of them, they are all there on jecpodcast.com. And of course, you can continue to send us messages as well through jecpodcast.com. Just click on the contact form there and leave your message very simply. 
We will be back in 2021 and we're already working on some really exciting new ideas for a new season next year. So I do hope you'll join us for that. And if you are subscribed to this RSS feed and if you're receiving the podcast regularly through Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify or any of those podcast subscription services, there's no need to go anywhere else. When we restart with the Series 2 in 2021, we will be using this exact same feed. So you'll still get all of the new episodes if you just remain a subscriber. We'll send them all through to you. But in the meantime, a great episode ahead. And it starts with Richard West next. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, continuing our look through a lifetime of motorsport with the memories of Richard West now. And uh, we talk, Richard, well, in the last episode of the current series of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. It's been a fantastic trip down memory lane over the past 35 weeks. It's been great sharing it with you. Thank you, Wayne. Yeah, it's been. It's also made me go back to my diaries and go back to some of my folders and look things up and check things over. Probably made me realise how old I am now as well. That's <laughs> one of the issues. But no, you're right. It, it's been a great year, and all credit to you and the rest of the team behind the podcast. We've done a great job, and I know it's gone a long way during 2020 to keeping people informed of what we're up to within the JC. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, we will be back in 2021 and uh, we're coming up with all sorts of uh, great ideas for future series of the JC podcast. But uh, for this week, Richard, we talk in the light of a phenomenal accident that we witnessed in Formula One last weekend. Of course, Romain Grosjean had that terrible crash uh, that resulted in the car literally splitting in half and catching fire. Now, in previous years, he wouldn't have walked away from that. But um, as you and I have discussed on this podcast, safety has come along so far in motorsport that actually he's doing okay, isn't he? Yeah, remarkable pictures on the internet of him yesterday, you know, in Bahrain, where he's there, you know, with team members smiling at the camera. Um, I think, again, much has been written and been said about the incident already. And, you know, I don't want to sort of troll over that. But if you actually, one of the things that I, I did a bit of research after I saw the incident, spoke to several friends still in F1. And, of course, the weight of the cars has also increased really dramatically. And, in fact, where you see some of the static pictures where the entire tub and the halo had become separate, Separated from the back end of the car effectively and had gone through the barrier the weight would have had quite a lot to do with that because obviously you know you know mass being driven forward at any speed is going to create damage and in fact looking back if you go right back to 1961 the dry weight of a formula one car was 450 kilos but in more recent decades in the last year of the v8 engines in 2013 the f1 cars weighed 642 kilos um but of course as the new engines came in those weights went up and then in 2017 we got wider wheels and tires that took the cars up to 728 kilos the halo added weight in 2018 but thank god it did because you look at those pictures of romaine's car and you see that the halo did the most remarkable job and currently this season the cars are weighing 746 kilos without the driver in them so next year yet again we see another increase including heavier standard parts taking a car up to 768 kilograms so when you think of that speed the car going off and spearing into the barriers at that particular circuit 
That had the effect of driving the entire tub and thankfully uh, a secure Romain Grosjean through the barriers. But nonetheless, it was a remarkable accident. And I, like many millions of others around the world, were visibly shocked by it, but also incredibly relieved when I saw him jump out and across the barrier. Remarkable. Mm. Proof of what we were saying a few episodes back about the developments in safety in motorsport generally, and especially uh, over the years from the early 1950s, when, of course, Jaguar enjoyed their first wins at Le Mans and how far the sport has come in those decades since. Proof of that, but also each team has a disaster plan within the team that is designed to steer the team through a difficult set of circumstances like that should it arise in a race. Let's explore how the team goes into the process at the moment that that happens and what that process is designed to do. When I got involved in the 80s, it wasn't a subject that was very much talked about. You know, there, there was a sport that in previous decades had lost lots of drivers. And then during the 80s, when things accelerated technically and commercially, people started to give it some thought. And I remember when I arrived at McLaren, there was always a very strict protocol of what would happen in the event of an incident. It was, it was, it was in writing for you as an employee. You knew that in the event of a serious accident or, or God forbid, a fatality, there would be a re- reference to the press officer and the team manager. But that was really all it was. When I joined Tom in 89, Tom Walkinshaw, it was one of my first questions because, you know, sports car racing, particularly the 24-hour races, Daytona and Le Mans, terminal velocities are enormous, terminal speeds. And I said to Tom, do we have, you know, and I said, do we have a disaster plan? And, and he said, well, no, not really. You know, if things go wrong, we've got a press officer. And I said, well, I think we truly ought to sit down and discuss the chain of command because if you look at some of the major disasters, particularly the air industry, if you see anybody interviewed after after a plane crash and fatalities are involved, the representative of the manufacturer or the representative of the airline will always start with those lines. We haven't yet got all of the information. And one of the worst things that can happen in a in a a tragic situation or a serious accident is that information starts to leak out that is either incorrect or leads to speculation. So certainly in the case of TWR Jaguar, we put together a very, very clear line of communication where our communication manager and myself and Tom Walkinshaw and Roger Silman at that time, who was the team manager and the director of TWR, there was a very clearly charted route in the event of certain things unfolding, a technical failure leading to an accident and injury, a technical failure leading to an accident and a death, a failure unknown leading to an accident or death. And each thing had a very carefully charted line of communication and responsibility apportioned to each person. And nobody else was to speak outside of that chain of command. And that has been refined and refined over the decades, thankfully. And what it allows for in the event of an incident is a very, very clear line of communication, ensuring that the information that's put out to the public, to the manufacturer, to the sponsors, the drivers, families, is strictly adhered to. And it's very important that that, that, that is the way that things are done. Two key things there, aren't there? It's preventing speculation and protecting families. And that was something that was always made very clear to me. Those were the two things that you had to avoid above all else, really. Yeah, I actually had a very um, very personal experience of that in 1984 in Kyle Army in South Africa. Um, obviously, I was working for Williams. We had Kenki Rosberg and Shaq Lafitte in the car. 
Khaki came together at the bottom of the circuit and there was a resulting fire and black smoke, you know, erupted. I phoned the hotel that we were staying at because the smoke was very visible and I knew Khaki's wife was at the hotel. And I said to the receptionist, would you please let Mrs. Rosberg know there's been an accident, but Khaki is okay. And half an hour later, Sina, Keki's wife, turned up in floods of tears with a friend. And the hotel receptionist had said that there'd been a serious accident involving Keki. And of course, all she could see was black smoke. And it taught me an incredibly poignant lesson. They were very good about it. Keki and his wife took me to one side and said, listen, you know, learn from this. And I did just that. And of course, decades later, when... um, the incidents unfolded on race day at Imola and Ayrton had his accident, which we've talked about a lot. The plan by then was second nature. And the important thing is, A, you learn from your mistakes and B, that you have a plan. And as that incident unfolded and Ayrton was airlifted off to the hospital, um, I was given information by Professor Watkins, the late Sid Watkins. He said, I will phone you. Only I will phone you and give you information. And when, sadly, he phoned me later that day and said to me, I'm afraid, you know, Ayrton's gone. Uh, he's succumbed to his injuries. You better get the team together. Then immediately, myself and Bradshaw and Harrison, the team manager, called a meeting in the back of the truck. We briefed Frank, Adrian Newey, Patrick Head as to what, you know, we'd been told or I'd been told by Sid Watkins. And the plan went into place. And that's exactly what it is. It's sitting down, having those uncomfortable conversations about what happens if, and then you've got the right information to feed out to to all the people we've talked about so far. That's an incredible mindset to have, to be able to carry that out, I've always thought. Yeah, it's a huge one. You carry your own thoughts with you um, at the time of a tragedy. And certainly, you know, when the race restarted, Imola and various other, you know, examples of races over the years where, the tragedies have taken place. In the back of your mind, you do individually question whether you should be or shouldn't be, and you go through that, you know, as a human being. But logically, the point about the team pulling together is very, very true. Um, the camaraderie that you get, I remember when Mecca Hakkinen had his serious accident in Adelaide and, and Ron Dennis made his statement. The, the pit lane was hushed. You know, the other teams come along, they listen very carefully. You are, and it's a it's a phrase that's misused often, but racing teams and racing series championships, they are families. You know, the men and women in them work very, very closely together and they celebrate success and they feel failure and, you know, tragedy in, in much the same way as a, a smaller home-based family unit would do. And it's that support that gets you through and the support mechanisms are encouraged within all of the teams. And I remember walking down to the Simtech garage on the Saturday evening, you know, and seeing Charlie Moody, who was an ex-Williams mechanic there. And, you know, just people walking up, saying a few words, putting their arms around guys and girls and just saying, you know, very personal things. And it sounds a dark subject, but it's actually a great reflection of humanity. And in these difficult times that we've been through in 2020, when I see some of the things that people have done and the sacrifices that people have made, human race is a pretty amazing thing, really, isn't it? Sure is. And there, I think, we'll leave it for this week. It's been great talking to you, Richard, over the past 35 weeks and hearing all of these fantastic memories and stories from your lifetime in motorsport. Uh, You're not going away entirely because we'll have you back on for the Christmas special that will go out on Christmas Day, 25th of December, where we're going to get together you alongside all the other directors of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, representatives of the board and the staff in the offices, just to review the year. So uh, we'll look forward to talking to you then. In the meantime, Richard West, thanks very much. 
Thank you, Wayne. It's been a fantastic privilege working with you this year and the rest of the team. And uh, to all of our members, to all of the people I've met this year through the Zoom calls I've been doing in the evenings, to everybody on the board, the Ops Committee, be safe. Have a fantastic Christmas. Listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. So last week um, we talked about the Maguire's S-Type R build that we've been doing here over the last year. Now I thought I would carry on a little bit with this because as I'm sure you can remember I couldn't discuss a lot of the modifications that we were actually carrying out onto this vehicle last week because it hadn't actually been announced yet. Now there is an episode going live on YouTube over the weekend um, which is us doing the full manual gearbox conversion for this car. So that's the, the modification that I couldn't discuss um, and as I'm sure you're aware that's quite a big statement for one of these cars to get that all to work so as i'm sure you all know the jaguar s type r never came in a manual option they only offered the automatic zf six-speed box for this so we've developed a package it's something we've been working on for quite a long time the actual mechanical side of the gearbox conversion is relatively straightforward and we've done this on our palmer xkrs and some of the other conversions of the v8s we've done here um, but to actually integrate the manual gearbox into the standard ecu and electronics on the car um, for full road use is where we've come up with a lot of complications now when you remove the automatic gearbox you unfortunately get restricted performance and that gearbox is on the CAN network so the, the module is the gearbox so it causes a whole host of problems once that gearbox is removed so is what we've been doing over over the last year actually is developing a package with our friends over at PV Engineering and we've managed to come up with a plug and play standalone ECU conversion for this and we've actually got this standalone ECU to be able to communicate with all the electronics on the vehicle so it is actually on the CAN network so is what we can do basically is unplug the OEM ECU plug in our adapter loom with this new max ECU and the car will start run and drive exactly how it did before but with the added benefit of one having a manual gearbox and us having absolute full control over the performance of that vehicle from the ECU so it's a massive step for us and um, the first car we've done this from is the Meguiar's build so if you've got time take a look at the Meguiar's YouTube channel there's a video on there explaining the actual manual conversion we're going to go into some more detail later down the line um, with the actual ECU and some of the wiring and the tuning that goes in behind it just to go into some further detail with that and explain exactly what we've done but we are really pleased with this and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final finished car over the last couple of weeks um, we've trying to get the car finished for it to go live in the first magazine which is January next year so over the, over this week we've been fitting up door cards, getting all the graphics on the car and finishing off the final touches um, after the dyno. So we had some pretty impressive um, power figures as well from the car. We gained quite a lot of performance um, going over with the standalone management systems. We've also done some modifications to the air intake and supercharger and we've also changed the pulleys on the car. So we are very close to 500 horse. Um, we replaced those injectors as we explained in last week's episode because we were getting to the limitation of the injector room maxing those out so all in all it's going to be a really good uh, drivable car with a manual gearbox and it's definitely completely transformed the car so it's something that we're really excited about and hopefully you, you'll all feel the same and it's a uh, it's something that i'm really proud of that we've managed to finally achieve so once that goes live in the magazine in January, um, over the Christmas break, we plan to start the preparations with my XJR6 for next year. So 
Um, we are racing with a classic touring car club, as I've said earlier in some of the previous episodes of the podcast, and it's something that we're really looking forward to getting stuck into. It's going to be a completely different layout for the Jaguar racing, and there's some really exciting things coming up. So 2020 hasn't been the best year for everyone, um, but then again, it did start the podcast, and I've really enjoyed being part of it, and we look forward to hopefully meeting some of you and seeing you at some of the shows next year. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Now, Border Reavers were raiders along the border between Scotland and Wales for over 400 years who raided and stole from villagers both English and Scottish. But they were also a small racing team based out of the Borders village of Chernside near the town of Duns, and they were originally founded by a Jock McBain, an agricultural engineer and garage owner. Now, Jock had all the promise of being a racing driver in the late 1930s, but the Second World War and National Service prevented it. But he formed local motor clubs and was keen to have a go himself. So he persuaded some of his farmer customers and his mates locally to buy Cooper 500cc racing cars. And so the Border Reavers racing team was formed. It went on to represent a formidable lineup of talented drivers, all of whom enjoyed help from Jock's company in race preparation. It was in the 1950s that Jock McBain asked a very young Jim Clark if he would be prepared to race for Border Reavers after he'd just beaten Jock in a previous race, uh, with Ian Scott Watson managing the team. Both jumped at the chance and went in search of a suitable car. That suitable car turned out to be the Merkit Brothers Jaguar D-Type, and Jim Clark famously drove it home to the borders from Cambridge. The 1958 season really got underway with the team heading for Full Sutton, a Yorkshire airfield circuit where Clark had two wins in the Jaguar D-Type and became the first driver to win a UK sports car race at an average of over 100 miles an hour. It was a humble set of beginnings for Jim Clark who would go on to be one of the world's finest racing drivers and still to this day is considered so. All this though didn't go unnoticed by his young cousin who, at 10 years younger than Jim Clark, was inspired by him to go racing himself. That young cousin's name is Doug Niven. He's trustee of the Jim Clark Trust in Duns and he joins us now on the JEC podcast. Hiya Doug, how are you? Uh, Good morning Wayne. I'm good thank you, Yeah, I'm I'm well. Wondering, you know, getting through this uh, lockdown session and hopefully we're going to come through the other end with the, the end of the virus soon and the vaccine. Absolutely, yes. We're all looking forward to a, a better year in 2021, but um, you're not locked down too bad, are you? Because I understand I talked to you in Dubai at the moment. We are, actually. We're fortunate to come out here. Uh, I have family out in, in actually Abu Dhabi, and uh, so having three days in Dubai and then going down there. So we're going to be here for the next week or two. So we're lucky to get a temperature of around about 25, 30 degrees. Better weather than you would normally expect to have in the borders, which of course is where you spent most of your life. And uh, you were born in a town that will resonate with many fans of motorsport. Of course, you were born in Duns. Take us back to those really early days and you were on the Whitsum Hill farm, the family farm. 
you must have grown up around motorsport. Yeah, um, well, I was born in Duns, and uh, I still live in the farmhouse. And um, but my family came down to the borders at the same time as uh, my cousin uh, Jim Clark, who. Um, as a Fifer as well. My parents were from Fife and uh, they all came down to the borders in the late 30s. And uh, so born in Duns and uh, went to school at Stathallan in Perthshire, so nearly back to my roots during my formative years. And then when I came home, actually my father died when I was 18, so I was thrown in the deep end. And um, and the first thing we did was um, take a driving test. Um, we joined the Berrington District Motor Club and the local Young Farmers Club, which everyone seemed to do at that time. And that was a your know, staple diet for midweeks and weekends um, events. And um, so that's what happened there. And I just farmed all my life since then. But um, when I got married, my mother uh, was still alive and living in a farmhouse. So my aunt and uncle... Uh, Aunt Nelly and Uncle Jim Clark, Jim's mother and father, said, well, why don't you stay in Jim's house? Because in 1960, whatever that was, 67, uh, Jim was uh, racing, obviously, abroad and tax exiled, living in Bermuda, and he'd been in Paris previously. So I lived in Jim's house when we got married, for, for, in fact, until after his, his death in 68, and then for a further year or two. And our first daughter was born at Edenton, Mains, which is five miles from my farm. So I used to commute back and forward and just and uh, keep an eye on things at both ends. And Jim's father was travelling back and forward from the, their family farm at Kerchester's, which is over near Kelso. And he would come across at weekends to do the wages and things, so we would catch up. And he was a great man for wanting to go on mystery tours at weekends and things. And compared to Jim, who drove, as we know... <laughs> much faster than many others. Um, Jim's father was a very slow driver, 25, 30 miles an hour, spent his time looking over hedges at other people's fields. And I was just there to go with him, just open the gate so he could drive through the fields. But we had a great time in these days. It was a lovely life, you know, and uh, enjoyed it. Of course, the thrill of being at school and reading about Jim um, in his formative years in the late, late 50s and 60s. I left school in 63. Of course, by that time, Jim was a world champion in, in, in 63. I remember we left school and we went to the British Grand Prix, the European Grand Prix, but Brad Hatch in 64. That was the first time we really saw him in action. Well, it's amazing that that agricultural community on the eastern side of the Scottish borders, right on the coast there at Duns, gave rise to so many motorsport mad people and some real talent as well, like Ian Scott Watson, like yourself, and of course your cousin Jim Clark. Was it the fact that you had a racing icon like Jim Clark in the family and that you grew up knowing that one of the, your family members was now a world-famous Formula One driver? Was that what inspired you yourself into motorsport? Or was there just something in the water in Duns that made everyone go out racing? Well, of course, growing up, Jim was exactly 10 years older than me. So, um, so when I was at school... In the latter teens, from 13 until 17, I used to pick up the papers on a Monday morning to find out just what Jim had been doing abroad, whether it had been in the Tal Grand Prix or the Rand Grand Prix in, in, in South Africa, or where he was or what he was doing. Every you know Monday morning, we were checking the papers, and we got the bug from that, and uh, just reading about that. And I think 
I'd been driving tractors on the farm since I was eight years old, uh, and and I used to wash the, the, the family cars only so I could drive the cars uh, around the block a couple of times <laughs> and back again. And so we were we were doing that as well. But um, so but yeah, you're absolutely right. We got the bug from from uh, following Jim Billy, and uh, when I was staying at Edith Mains too. Um, Jim would come home on the odd weekend, and so we'd see him, you know, at, at times as well. But as I say, he was pretty much a tax exile. Nobody saw him in his last couple of years very much. But when he did come home, it was just great to catch up. But he didn't want to talk about motorsport, really. I think he wanted to hear more about what was happening on the farm and what, what was going on in that type of thing. But anyway, it's been, it's been well documented. He came home to do a, the village of Chernside, where Jim lived, um, as opposed to Duns, um, gave him sort of some great celebrations and an open dot bus when he won his championship, world championships. And, and these were great parties and great times. But when Jim was killed in 1968, I started motor racing in 69, much against the family's wishes. Because as I said earlier, my father had died previously to that when I was 18. So um, and people said, why do you want to go motor racing when you've got a family farm to, to, to look after? And, but anyway, I had to get out of my system, so we started uh, racing in '69. We did that for you know 12, 15 years after that. Still managing to manage the farm in between times. I had a few opportunities to go south and do some other things, drive. But I just thought I must. Well, both yourself and Jim, obviously from agricultural backgrounds, huge passion for farming, but also you had very similar routes into motorsport because you yourself were involved with the Border Reavers team, weren't you? Tell us more about how that sparked Jim's career and yours as well. Jim and I um, did a similar sort of journey during the day a lot of times. Living at Eden Mains, the first village you came to was Chunside and the, 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 the village, and the, in that village was the, the garage of Jock McBain. And Jock McBain was the basis of the Border Reavers team. And when I was going back and forward in the Bering District Motor Club days and things, we would be rallying and everything else, and our cars would go into the garage to be fixed and come back out again. And we used to go and see the Aston Martin DBR1 and the, and the TKF9 Jaguars sitting in the, on, on the forecourt there. Little did we realise the value of these things we thought they would come to now. And these days, they were tried to sell for about under a, you know, under a thousand pounds, and, and nobody wanted them, you know. So that kind of got the bug going in, getting there and watching these cars being sort of prepared. But but latterly, I mean, they just sat there until they were sold. But so I, from there, um, uh, one of Jock McBain's uh, directors, um, Harry Simmons, had a, has, has a son, Archie Simmons, who became my mechanic in 1969. And he, we still work together on, on things now. And he, 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 he uses my garage on the farm. We started a garage together in '77, and and we worked uh, together on all these different projects. And he is still around now. But uh, so that so that Harry Simmons, who looked after the Border Reavers car, his son Archie looked after my cars, and we started with Ford Anglia. Quickly bought the ex Graham Birrell Wilders of Glasgow Ford Escort twin cam that had won the Scottish Championship in '69. And I just casually said to Graham one day, if you ever think of selling it, let me know. And I got a phone call around about Christmas time in 69, that first year. I said, yeah, the car's on, on the market. So I thought, well, what do I do now? Put my money where my mouth is and, and bought the car. And we won the Scottish Championship in 1970. And that got me started into driving, you know. And then um, Ian Scott Watson, of course, who who was Jim's mentor and started Jim off racing, everyone knows. Um, and he was running a business called Celtic Homes. They said... They would like me to pick up the mantle of the Border Reavers again that Jim had carried for so long. And so the Border Reavers was restarted under, with 
uh, Ian's um, blessing and the Border Reavers banner was reunited and Celtic Home sponsored my car, the, the Ford Escort. And we had various Ford Escorts. I like to go for the big engine car, V8 cars. So we had an ex Charles BT V8 car, then we had a Boss Ford Escort, another one, and then a Boss Ford Capri and so on. And, and through the various cars, and then we had an XL Man car, X00346F, which is quite a famous car. And and then, just quickly moving on, we um, we bought, I tended to buy people's second-hand cars, because by that time they'd been pretty well sorted. And whoever bought, building their new car, it took them a year later to get it fixed. So you managed to beat them before they got their new car going, which is what was happened with like Mick Hill, who's a great pal of mine, a great friend. And I bought the V8 Beetle, that's a Trojan 101 base. Uh, was 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 a Chevy Beetle in the back, and and that car gave us a lot of success, and up t- until 1978 when we won uh, 28 races out of 43 starts, and um, we came second in the the UK um, club championship with 28 wins, only beaten by Kenny Atchison in the Formula Three with 29 wins, and but that was, and then we just thought we were really chasing lap records at that point. With, I think there was 13 or 14 circuits we were going to when I had the lap record at nine of them. And so after that, and also you began to think, well, hang on, do I really want to go to Brands Hatch again and come leave there at seven o'clock at night back up to Scotland to start work again at seven o'clock in the Monday morning? So um, so we started to do some sort of saloon car, road to going saloon car things. We did the BMW 3 Series for Coombs of Guildford and bits and pieces of things like that. And in fact, those were Mick Hill's cars. And then Andy Barton got me to drive a Formula 2 car, a single-seater car, which I really wasn't insured for because it wasn't a tin top. But I, I did. But he made me do that for a few few races just to see if the experience, see what Jim went through, and um, I enjoyed it. But uh, by that time, my career was coming to an end, and we were getting back to more serious farming. So, so that was kind of how that went. But um, so we had twelve years of fun. But like, what I did was it got it out of my system. You kind of got it out of your system because, of course, you're still very much involved in the motorsport world through your uh, trusteeship of the Jim Clark Trust, and it's fantastic that you. You know, you've not only combined your own successful racing career um, with with a farming job, but also that you've managed to keep the legacy of Jim Clark, your cousin, alive through all of those years and, and, and continue to do so. It's a fantastic place at Duns. If no one's ever visited there, you need to. It is one of those must-see places in any petrol head's uh, list of things to do. Um, tell us how that all came about and, and how you managed to secure all of that we'll go back again uh, way into the um, 1968 year when Jim was killed unfortunately very tragically and I was living at, at Edenton Mains and Jim's uh, parents said to me you know after his death you know we'd have become a family trustee to, to just look after the trophies that Jim had amassed and were really lying in the table in the maze not knowing what to do with them. Duns Town Borough Council and the Provost Tom Lenny offered to, to house all Jim's trophies in a building in Duns just to show them off to the world and after the success and pride of what Jim had brought to Duns and the borders. So Ian Calder, who is a nephew of Jim, Ian and I, we had to make the decision as to what to happen to these trophies if and, if and when the, the council said they didn't actually maybe not want them any longer. Which has not been the case, as we know that they've been there. And Jackie Stewart came in 1969. We opened the first memorial, Jim Clark Memorial Room Trust, which is what Ian and I were the members of. Uh, and that, along with the uh, chairman of the Dunstan Council and the two current uh, elected 
trustees comprised the, the trusteeship of that. And that was 1969. So until sort of 83, that Jim Clark Memorial Room Trust uh, managed these trophies, which is really what it was, a memorial room as opposed to a museum. And say in 1993, it had a revamp uh, and Jackie Stewart came along and reopened it again. We added another room and put some films and things on. And then in, 19, in 2012 or thereabouts, the museum came to, to, to the Memorial Room Trust and said, look, we've got a, 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 a sum of money we'd like to put into the, a new uh, updated uh, museum. And we suggest we build it in the, the old... Um, high school, because at that point we built a new high school. And so we got Jackie Stewart involved, and he came down and I said, look, this is not where Jim would want to, to be in the back of a old high school. Where the, the current building is just now, it's a standstone building, just like Edington Mains, what Jim would be used to. He would remember this this building being an old veterinary um, business as well for animals. So with, so Jackie became then... Um, Insistence, we, we kept the building in the same, but expanded it out through the back. Originally, the council wanted to lose to sell that building, get it off the books, and utilise some old buildings at the high school. But anyway, the decision was made to keep where stay where we were in, in, in 2012-13. But it took the game plan then was to open the, the new museum in 2018, which would have been a 50 years anniversary of his death. It did take a year longer. We got heritage lottery funding to match funding the um, the, the, the council's uh, sum of money they put in. Then, at, at, so in 2012-13, when that happened, we decided to form the Jim Clark Trust as opposed to the Jim Clark Memorial Room Trust, which still runs. But the Jim Clark Trust uh, brought on uh, some new members. Uh, Ian and I are still being members there, and and we brought a, 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 a son-in-law Ben Smith to, to become secretary and chair of the trust. And, and we ran that for until about two years, two, two, well, last year, in fact, last year. Then Ben decided to move on to new pastors and new. So Ian and I carried on with that. And we now have uh, Keith Henderson, who is another nephew of Jim's, who's joined us as a family member. Because we were quietly getting told that you know, family succession is something you have to think about. None of us are getting any younger. And um, so Keith has just recently retired. As finance director, and he he's come on board, but because of the lockdown, we've only been able to do Zoom meetings and things. So really, the, in 2018, 19, the, the the museum raised the money. We had to raise 300,000 pounds to trust ourselves. So we did that by rattling a, a, a Jim Clark edition Los Sabora, the chassis number 100,000, and that raised a lot of money uh, for the trust. And now the um, museum opened in 2019, uh, and we um, have gone from strength to strength. Unfortunately, it opened in August last year, and, and, and within the first five months, we had um, 12,000 visitors. And then, of course, in March, as we all know, the lockdown came, the virus arrived, and that meant we had to shut down till about July. We then opened it again under a, a new sort of um, by, by appointment only basis. And and they've been trickling in quite a lot since then, but because of the restrictions and area tier numbers and where you can come from, we weren't able to actually um, uh, get as many as we wanted. And as planned, the museum is closing down on the first of November anyway. But the trust that had uh, the museum has certainly um, been a great success. We've won 
the REC Award for the Best Historic Museum in, in, in the UK recently. We got a five-star award with Visit Scotland. And um, it's really done very well for itself. And we now have another chap, Liam uh, Howell, who has come on board, who's in the younger generation, is into the sort of uh, all this social media and all that type of thing. And he's driving it forward again. On, on, so we have a website with, and a e-shop, online shop, which is very successful and selling stuff all, all, all around the world. And so we are fighting above a weight from a wee town in Duns, you know? Yeah, but absolutely. It's, and, and it's good. It's great, and it's a fantastic legacy to to Jim Clark. And uh, we were up there for the opening at uh, Bonus Revival uh, as a Jaguar Enthusiast Club not so long ago. And of course, you had the fantastic Border Reavers D Type there that Jim drove, the famous TKR nine. It was fantastic to see that car in the flesh. And uh, there's there's some incredible stories of uh, Jim Clark and his involvement with that car, including uh, uh, racing it and then driving it back through the night to Duns, wasn't there? Uh, well, it was the the, the farm lorry. Uh, broke down. There, there'd been a mistake with um, someone had thought they'd turned the the, the water the the, the 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 switch off for the for, for the water for, for the tank for the header tank. And in fact, they'd opened it, so they got happy down to the road from from Chernside to Berwick, and it suddenly dried up when they got to Berwick. So they just took it off the back of the lorry, and Jim drove it down to I think it was full Sutton that he was going to at that point in, in Yorkshire, and and they, and they drove it down. But just to say that uh, at, at the bonus meeting last year, I was delighted to be able to, to, to go out on the road with the TKF9 in the Jaguar, having seen it all these years ago, you know, and uh, to be able to sit in there. But just to, the, the museum, of course, we're very lucky to have the, the Lotus 25 in there at the moment, which, was, um, which came from the Tingley Museum in Switzerland and kindly loaned to us for three years. We also have Dari Frankitti's um, Watch Lotus Catina won the 1964 British Saloon Car Championship and um, so there's a lot to see and do in there and some nice films and all that type of thing so it's been it's been great to to to, to welcome people there from all over and and the cars you know we're not standing on our, on our laurels at the moment we're looking to sort of we would like to think we, we call it phase two in time to come but who knows um, if we can raise money there is room out the back to, to, to expand the museum to get more cars in because the cars are the stars at the end of the day and if we can do that and there's memorabilia that we have, haven't got space for at the moment so we'd like to think we could expand it but and we have a simulator that's it was in use, but because of COVID-19 and all the security, is, you know, including it down and everything else, we can't use that at the moment, although it's 49. But we have been, you know, I mean, we're lucky with the patrons that we have. You know, so Jackie is our new president, you know, and, um, you know, we've been to Goodwood, the Earl of March, and he's just patron has very kindly helped us along the way a lot. The late Andrew Cowan, who sadly died, you know, in the past October, and um, but uh, Hugh McCaig, Curie Cost patron, and you know there's, there's just the um, the cool tart, uh, see Dario Frankitti himself, and you know almost too many to mention. But and John Clark, John Clark Cars, he's been a great supporter. Morris Leslie, who's got a great collection of cars. Lots of people are very interested in, 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 in supporting us, and when we go to these events, it's just great to see, like, you know, like yourself at Bonesse and everything else. It's just all part of the experience, you know, and it's great. To, and Peter Winter has been a great supporter, and we currently have his um, uh, Jim, ex Jim Clark, his Jabby Combat 
uh, yellow left-hand driver Alain that Jim drove in Paris and gave to Jabby Combat when he went to Bermuda. So Peter's kind of loaned us that. So we have that as well at the moment. It's fantastic, isn't it, that uh, someone can have such a legacy and inspire so many superstar drivers in their careers as Jim Clark did and go and see the fantastic Jim Clark Trust building at Duns when you reopen in March next year. Sum up Jim Clark for us Doug and, and sum up who he was that you knew personally and what the legacy you think it is that he's left on the motorsport scene. He was to me a role model when he, he was at home in, in these early formative years when I was just leaving school and I was staying at, you know, at Edington and he's just a, a modest man you know, and, and the legacy, you know, inspiration and education are, are, are things that are the mottos of the, of, of, the, of, of, the, of the museum and the trust. And if we can ever try to, you know, be like the man that he was, so modest and unassuming, he didn't like the limelight. He just loved driving cars just as fast as he could do. But he would drive any car anywhere just cause it, for the love of driving it, not because of the money or anything else. He just wanted to get behind the wheel and just test himself against the best and, and in all sorts of cars. And that's what I think is great. You know, I know today's racing is different and that's, that's what it is. But, you know, to see them in a saloon car and a sports car and a Grand Prix car on the same same day, just for the love of doing it, you know. Uh, and and then we'd see him coming home in his aeroplane back to Winfield, which is just three miles from our, our doorstep at the farm, and then come driving, driving past like any other person. You know, just amazing to see somebody so unassuming and, and doing what he did around the world. And of course, going up to Indianapolis, uh, uh, winning Indianapolis and going up to the museum in Edinburgh at two o'clock in the morning with his parents to watch um, to watch Jim uh, win that is, is a memory I'll never forget either, you know. Well, I think the uh, the strap line of the Jim Clark Trust sums it up well, really. Heritage, education and inspiration. It's like what we like to do here on the show as well. So uh, check it out. JimClarkTrust.com is where all the information uh, you need to find is. And uh, Doug, we better let you go because I know you've got uh, holiday things to be doing out there in Dubai. And uh, it's been great to have you on. So Doug Niven, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wayne. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to to keep in touch with us here on the JEC Podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.